The sermon this morning is going to be from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If you would, uh, please stand to your feet in honor of the word of God as we read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You can be seated. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. So maybe you've heard we're having a baptism this morning. That's right. Let's do that again because that was pretty weak. And I just said someone's getting baptized. All right. Here we go. All right, so um, before we get to the festivities of the baptism, I am going to preach. So, woohoo! All right, um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 today, as Ben read. So, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 9. So, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that um, in your word is power. And that whenever we read it, whenever we look at it, whenever it's expounded, that the Spirit comes and moves in mighty power in not just the speaker's heart, but in all those that are there. And the Holy Spirit is working either to draw them closer to Christ or the Holy Spirit makes them aware of their sin and they choose to rebel against Christ. But Lord, either way, we know that you're at work and no one remains neutral. And so we ask, Lord, this morning for a special spirit, spirit involvement, a special coming of your spirit, and that everyone here, including myself, would be drawn deeper into Christ. Those that are believers right now would, would understand the preciousness of what it means to know Christ Jesus our Lord. And those that aren't believers, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ, I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be so understandable to them that they would put their faith in Christ And his work alone on the cross for their right standing or justification or declaration of innocence. That they could be saved today by Christ. That they could cross over from death and be brought into life. All these things are possible with you, God. And so, I'm completely aware of my desperation for your presence to be here. And I pray that you would be. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the motifs of today, or maybe the motif or theme of today, the way we're going to preach this sermon is going to be in an accounting context. Any, any accounting majors? I, uh, I started off as an accounting major. I took two years of accounting in high school, and I thought, oh, this is awesome. I mean, I'm just going to be an accountant. And so I went into accounting in college, and I found out how dreadfully boring it was. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. And I use things like if I'm not good at it, don't understand it. I categorize it as dreadfully boring. Um, and so I didn't understand it. So I was like that. There's no way I can do that. I'm just going to be more of a finance major. That seems to be maybe a little bit more attainable for me. And then that didn't work either. And so I had no idea what I was doing. And maybe you're like one of these college students that changes their major five times. I certainly was. I, I changed it from that to like, well, it can't be anything directed towards business, but I really like working with people. So I'll do psychology. And then I did psychology for a little while. And that's just crazy to me. I didn't understand anything. So I was like, well, I still want to work with people. So maybe sociology. And then I 
that was kind of maybe in the right vein, but it didn't have anything to do with Jesus. And so uh, God finally called me into ministry, actually transferred colleges, and then majored in religion, Bible. And here I am as a pastor, kind of in that sociology realm. So, uh, but here's the thing. I studied two years in high school and one semester in college. That's all it took for me to realize I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and so I know just enough accounting to be dangerous. And so I'm going to use some accounting terms, and it'll probably be somewhat right and somewhat wrong. But the general idea, hopefully, is going to be conveyed of what I think Paul is trying to do here in the text. He uh, is using some nomenclature or, or wording or whatever vernacular of, of accounting. So I'm going to try to um, be uh, adhere to the text the way that Paul is trying to do it. And, and we're going to look at it in that way. Now, if you haven't been here over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And one of the things we saw last week over in the end of chapter two is Paul holds out for us two examples of people that are Christians. And he says, these two people that are Christians, Timothy and Epaphroditus, you should emulate these two. You should want to strive to be like them. Now, he does that for a purpose. If we flash forward over to 317, look at 317 with me. It says, brothers, this is Paul writing to the people in Philippi. Brothers, join in imitating me. And you're like, wait a second. That doesn't seem right. We're supposed to emulate Christ. We're supposed to imitate Christ, not people. Is that really, if Paul... Is Paul really asking me to do that? And so let's read and see how that's definitely what he's asking, but we'll see why. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now that that pronoun has become plural. And so there's people that he's pointing to. And so really when we saw last week that Timothy and Epaphroditus, and I said this last week, that he's holding out for us two examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus and Outside of that, he's actually holding up for us four examples of Christ-likeness. And so if you look over in chapter 2, the first example and the book end he begins with, and the foundation is Jesus. And so everything is based on the gospel of Christ. Everything is based on what Christ has done for us. And because of the gospel, and we see in Philippians 2, because of Jesus, then Timothy and Epaphroditus are able to follow Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ, Timothy and Epaphroditus held out as our examples to emulate. We're not supposed to watch them, but only with our physical eyes. Our spiritual eyes are still fixated on, on, on Jesus, as it's told in Philippians 2. And so what we're doing here in Philippians 3, Paul is kind of rounding out for us those four examples. Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and now Paul in Philippians 3. But the amazing thing about Paul is, all he's going to do is just say, I thought that I was following God, I th- but really all those things aren't, aren't really worth anything. Instead, Christ is who's supreme. So he's really bookending what he started over in chapter two. So it's really Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Jesus again, even though he's talking about Paul. And these are the four emulations of the people that you should emulate. And he's going to talk about himself today. So that's the sermon. So you can really, you know, go get some drink coffee or something and you don't have to listen anymore but hopefully you will because i want to actually show you in the text where it is but that's really what's going on for us today and as he's doing this he's going to use um some some ideas from accounting where we're going to see an exchange happen some sometimes if you've been here you've heard me use this great exchange language and this is what it means um that jesus christ came and lived the perfect life he never died we are supposed to also live a perfect life, but we, none of us do. And so here's us living sinfully, and here's Jesus living perfectly. Because we've been sinful, we deserve death. But what happened is Christ, who lived a perfect life and was completely innocent, took our death for us. And so now, if you put your faith in Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection for you, a great exchange happens in that All of the perfection and righteousness of Christ is then given to you. As the Bible uses this word imputed, it's imputed into you. And now you are counted perfectly righteous before God. And all of your sin and all of the death that you deserve has been imputed to Christ on the cross. And he took all that for you. And so a great exchange happens where all the holiness and perfect perfection and innocence of Jesus is now given to you. And all of the death and... um, Sin that you had was put on Christ on the cross and it was all paid for on the cross and he beat it and resurrected. And that's the great exchange. And we've kind of attributed that to a Luther. Actually, it came from Athanasius a thousand years before that. Just a side note. Go read Athanasius. He was awesome. Um, 
he uh, beat the day with, if you will, with the Arians. So anyway, so that's kind of the, the, the background as we're going into Philippians 3.1 for us to understand that Paul's really going to start talking about himself now. And there's a little bit of a reason why he's doing this. You can see here in verse 2, it's verse 2 when he says, look out for the dogs. Now in the 21st century, that's generally a, a good word to call someone. You know, hey, what's up, dog? You're my dog. Like, that's not what Paul means here. When Paul says the word dog, this is actually not a good term. If you remember in Matthew 15, 26, Jesus looks at one of the Gentiles. We've been going through Matthew, you know, for like forever. Um, he looks at one of the Gentile ladies and he calls her a dog. And that wasn't a term of endearment by any means. And she understood that. Um, and so Paul is ironically taking the term that Jews used for Gentiles, and he's actually going to take that term and call the people who are Judaizers, people who are lifting high the, the following of the law, he's going to call them dogs. So he's going, to take the, he's going to take their term and turn it on them. So Paul's going to see there, you can see that he's going to call them dogs. Now here's what's happening. Paul's going to unpack the gospel for us through this text. And basically what he's saying is whenever he would go and he would plant churches in specific cities, he would go like he went to Philippi. He planted the church in Philippi. People came to know Christ. And then because Paul was a frontier missions guy, meaning he went to the unreached places. And as soon as people would come to know Christ, he would start a church and he would go to the next completely unreached place. The church itself would exist and and try to continue on just as we are today. There were other people who were Jews that would come into that city after Paul left and say, okay, here, listen, I know Paul preached the gospel uh, and that's right. But what we're going to say is in order to really be a Christian that pleases God, you have to have the gospel, but you also have to addition sign, add this specific thing. And if you add this specific thing, that equals Christianity. And then God is finally pleased with you. And the dogs, the, the Judaizers, the people that were coming in after Paul were saying, you have to have circumcision. If you are circumcised, the gospel, yes, plus circumcision, that's what equals Christianity. And so Paul hears about this. And so what he's going to do is he's going to address it here in Philippians 2. And he calls them dogs. So he's clearly not happy with this heresy. Um, What I want to do is not just let you look here at Philippians 3, but an an additional book where Paul really directs, um, gives some direct language towards these people who are called Judaizers or the dogs. Those are the people who hold Old Testament practices and say gospel plus Old Testament practices. Paul addresses them in the book of Galatians. So let me read you a little bit of what he says to them in the book of Galatians. If you've been here from the beginning, we actually studied Galatians when we first started for like 20 weeks. So here we are. They're saying Jesus plus circumcision equals Christianity. And this is what Paul says to those Judaizers are those dogs that are coming in and saying, you've got to be circumcised as well. In Galatians 1, 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So here's what he's saying. Faith in Jesus plus anything, different gospel, not the gospel. It can only be faith in Christ and that alone. And now listen, he's going to get even more vehement in his language. This is what he says. Not that there is another gospel because there's not. There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, so Paul's saying, if I come back or an angel from heaven comes to Philippi now or the region of Galatia or whatever and says anything different than the first thing I told you, look what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's that's pretty harsh language. And for emphasis, he's going to say it again right there in verse nine. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So we see Paul has pretty strong language for people who are distorting the gospel. These dogs, these Judaizers that are coming in and saying it's, it's faith in Christ, but it's also something else. Now that sets us up for Philippians here because Paul's going to say, um, if there's anybody in the world that has accumulated that gospel plus like that list of stuff, not just circumcision, but I've got even more stuff that I could put in that list. I've got an incredible list that I thought before I came to know Christ, please God. He's like, if there's anybody in the world that could accumulate a list, it's me. So these dogs, these fierce, these uh, 
Judaizers are completely off base. And so Paul's going to unpack for us that list that he has. And then we'll see the accounting thing that he does. So what I want you to do is, is look with me here. Um, and we're going to address that. Now, one other thing I want to read actually from, uh, from chapter 3, verse 2 in Philippians. It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. So he calls these, these Judaizers evildoers because they're changing the gospel. And he says... Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, if you are going to say circumcision is necessary in order to be a Christian, it's gospel plus circumcision. That circumcision that's being done is nothing but mutilation of the flesh. That's all it is. It, it achieves nothing when it comes to right standing before God. And, and in Galatians 5, Paul has some of the most aggressive language towards them. This is what he says in, in Galatians chapter 5 towards these Judaizers. In Galatians 5, 11, he goes, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then he says, those people that preach circumcision, this is what he says. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, I wish those that are preaching circumcision and that it has to be done would not just cut a little, but go ahead and cut the whole thing off. That's aggressive language, very aggressive language. That's in the Bible. That's amazing. That's how vehement Paul is against the idea that Jesus plus anything equals Christianity. It's always and only can be for us who are Christ followers. Jesus, faith in Christ, plus nothing equals gospel, equals salvation equals justification, equals right standing with God. Because there is nothing that we can do that will give us a right standing before God. Now, let me be really clear here. For those that are in Christ, we can please Jesus. Okay? So I'm going to be talking about doing things that try to give you a right standing before God. Let me, let me give you a, an example. Um, I, I've got four children and so there's nothing that my kids can do that are going to make me love them more or less. I, I am head over heels in love with my kids. I'm, I love them so much. Now, they may do things that please me and displease me, but it doesn't change my love for them. Okay? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're not going to be talking about the fact that if you are in Christ, and as you're going through the process of sanctification, you're going through the process of becoming more like Christ, you may do things that please and displease Jesus. That's not the category of thought today. Bring it back. We're talking about if you are trying to do things that actually give you a right standing with God, if you're trying to do things that actually cause Christ to love you more or declare you innocent. That's what Paul is addressing here. So we're not talking about the fact that we can all do things that please or displease, you know, sin less, do more things for Christ. Of course that's possible, but this is what Paul says here for us. Um, he says, finally, bro my brothers, Rejoice in the Lord. Now, 3-1 is pretty interesting because if you look, um, there's two more chapters later. And Paul, in the beginning of chapter 3, writes the word, finally. So not only is Paul a missionary, he's also a preacher. There was a one little boy that looked at his dad in a, in a sermon. He goes, Dad, what does the word finally mean when he says it? And he goes, nothing. It means nothing. And so that's kind of what's going on here, maybe. Um, Paul's using the word finally, but he writes for two more chapters. And you're like, Paul, um, you're definitely a preacher. You can, you can go on and on, it seems like, forever. There's a story in Acts, this is a side note, where there's a, there's a, uh, a guy named Eutychus where Paul's preaching. And he preaches for so long that Eutychus, well, I don't think Eutychus was the sharpest knife in the drawer because he decides to sit in, in a window seal on the second floor and listen to Paul and he gets tired and he doesn't get down. Well, he's sitting there for so long that after Paul goes on for so long, he, maybe he's throwing in a ton of finalies and keeps going. He's like, forget it. I'm going to sleep. He literally falls out of the second story window to his death while listening to a sermon. Paul goes down and heals him. But the way I remember it is my, uh, my, my professor, my religion professor said, I can remember his name, Eutychus, because Eutychus too, if you fill out the second story window. But um, so anyway, Paul says, finally, my brothers, which we think, does that mean anything? Does that mean anything at all when he says the word finally? D.A. Carson for us actually says the word finally can also be translated for us in this word, in this, in this text, so then. 
So what he's actually doing is Paul is continuing in that same argument that he's doing. Remember I said that he's talking about in the context of four people that we should imitate. But also one of the bigger, broader categories of thought throughout the entire book of Philippians is joy. If you remember this, the name of this series is Christ our joy. And you can see in 2.18 where it says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And the theme of joy continues reoccurring throughout the book of Philippians. And so he's saying, so then, based on the arguments that we've said and what we're going to keep saying, you should rejoice. And here's another example of Christ's likeness that you should emulate. So finally, or so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's going to say this many more times throughout the book. This is a, a huge theme of of um, the book of Philippians, that Jesus is after your joy, not just mere happiness, which can wither and, f- and fade away at the drop of a phone call, but deep and abiding joy in Christ. And he tells us, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble. I, um, the things I said to you, I'm about to say to you, I said when I was there, but I can write them too. And that's no trouble for me because it's going to be safe for you. It's good for you to hear these things again. And then he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, when he's talking about circumcision, he says, for we are the real circumcision. Now he's addressing the dogs and he's saying they preach physical circumcision as gospel or faith in Christ. Plus that is what equals Christianity. He goes, we are the real circumcision. So what's this real circumcision that he's talking about? He tells us in Romans two twenty nine. this is what he says. But a Jew or a follower of Christ, someone who is um, believing in Jesus, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So for Christians, circumcision is not an outward sign. Instead, circumcision of the heart or following Christ or the putting faith in the gospel is circumcision of the heart. Whenever regeneration happens, whenever God comes and circumcises your heart, gives you eyes that are open to the gospel. And he's changed your heart now so that you believe in Christ. Maybe here's a different verse. Let me let me tell it to you in Ephesians. I'm sorry, Ezekiel in the Old Testament talks about this heart change in chapter 36. Verse 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone um, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what he's talking about here is an inward circumcision of the heart. That's what real circumcision is. Not outward things. Not circumcision merely in a physical manner. And so he says... In verse 3, for we are the real circumcision. And so he's pointing it to that it must be based on the gospel and it must be a circumcision of the heart. And he says, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So those who are thoroughly gospel centered, who say my only righteousness is because of the gospel of Christ. Notice the language he uses. We kind of had, again, a resurgence of this gospel centrality here in America, which is just a picking up of the Reformation, which is just a picking up of the first century. But he uses this amazing language. It's interesting that Paul puts the gospel-centered language in, look at this, worshiping by the Spirit of God. Worshiping by the Spirit of God is just the whole gospel-centered movement again. And so he says that we are now not putting confidence in the flesh, But instead, we're going to worship by the Spirit of God. And then in verse 4, here it comes. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Now we're going to get into the the accounting thing. So he's saying, um, these Judaizers, these dogs, these people who are saying you got to do circumcision, they're putting confidence in the flesh. They're saying it's faith in Christ plus something. And so he's going to say, if you want to have confidence in the flesh... I have accumulated a list that is more magnificent than anyone. So let's talk about accumulating a list and thinking that that list is what gives you a right standing with God. And so this is what he does. He's going to give us some categories that we can think of. There's people who don't glory in the flesh and there's people who glory in the flesh. Now, Paul's speaking from a perspective of before I came to know Christ. Before I came to know Christ, I was glorying in my flesh. In other words, the things that I did, I thought that those things that I did here... Those things were giving me a right standing with God. And he's going he's gonna to list off some. And I want you to see these things. And then 
later on we'll see the, the, the awesome general ledger of accounting and, and, and um, debits and credits switch. Now, he, again, like I said, he's using count, accounting terms. So he's putting his debits on the left and his credits on the right. So there they are, debit and credit. And those are his two categories. And this is what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I have more. <clears throat> now, here's the list that he says. Um, number one, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, these people who were Gentiles that were coming to know Christ, they were getting circumcised later on in life. Paul's saying, I'm actually following the Mosaic law in Genesis 17, 11, and 12, where it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether they're born in your house or bought with your money or any foreigner who is not your offspring. Paul says, I was, I was actually circumcised on the eighth day. That's better than those guys. And I can keep going. So he's going to keep going for us. And he says, after that, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, I'm also of the people of Israel. So this is a big, broad category. We know that Jacob in the Old Testament was nicknamed Israel. He said, I'm not a Gentile. I'm actually one of the original people of God from the Old Testament. I'm an Israelite. I am born in the line of Jacob, which was made that promise was made to us in Genesis 32. And then he's going to keep going. He's going to start that broad category of Israel and then narrow it down for us. If you remember, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's, that's it. Let's just praise the Lord. And we know that there were 12 tribes. And so he's going to go with that. And he's going to narrow it down for us right here. This is what he says. Um, the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So he holds out, I'm actually of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's pretty, pretty big deal. If you remember back in the Old Testament, uh, there was a point where as they continued on, and they had their king. There was a point where the 12 tribes actually split. 10 went to the north and 2 went to the south. And the, ones, the two that actually went to the south stayed in the Davidic or the King David dynasty. And one of those tribes was Benjamin. And so Paul's kind of boasting, saying, hey, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, one that actually stayed in the Davidic dynasty. They didn't branch off and run after pagan people. And so he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So I'm continuing on. Not only am I circumcised on the eighth day, not only am I not a Gentile, I'm an Israelite, I'm actually from the tribe of Benjamin. More than that, you can see, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now that we're talking about Israelites or Hebrews, I'm not in this big, broad category of all these general kind of basic Hebrews. I'm actually a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm one of the top best Hebrews. I'm one of the best Israelites. I have a title which was actually given to Abraham in Genesis 14, 13, where Moses was writing about Abraham. Paul borrows that language and he's saying, I have deep roots in Jewish heritage of which I can boast. I am very steeped in the language and the culture. And I have been, I've been taught by Gamaliel. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So you think these dogs can boast about circumcision? Check out this list that I have. Now, again, this is from the perspective of Paul, the unbeliever, pre-Acts 9, before the big bright light comes and blinds him. Um, and so we see another thing he says, not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. A little Jewish history real fast. So in the first century, you had Judaism, those who were Israel, Israelites, they, they were Judaism. And inside Judaism, there were several groups of people who were Jewish. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. You had all these different, and there was even some more. But the Pharisees were kind of lifted up as being some of the more important. And he said... Uh, as, as far as the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are compared to some of the most staunch, some of the most disciplined, some of the most informed people who were Jewish. They were held in high regard into, as far as their sanctity or their morality. They were very, very, very moral people. Um, and the Pharisees were thought to be some of the ones who could interpret the scriptures the most accurately. Now, we know that's not true. Jesus calls them children of the devil. So <laughs> they weren't. But as far as what the most the people who kind of were religious, they looked at the Pharisees and they said, those Pharisees, they are held in high esteem. They are pretty amazing people. So Paul's just, again, accumulating this massive list against the dogs. And then he says, not only that, number six, I'm also, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. Now, I said this last week, Paul was a very zealous person. I mean, type A, get it done. I'm all in no matter what. And when he got saved, his personality never changed. And so as a Pharisee, he was very zealous. And he said, I, I'm such, he thought, I'm such a follower of God. 
Now, he wasn't. Now, I love God so much that I need to do everything to protect Judaism and God. And I hear about there's this group called Christians who are coming against what I believe to be right. So as a follower of God, I am so zealous for this that I'm going to kill all them. I'm going to step up and stomp them out and kill them. And then when he got saved, he just said, okay, I don't want to kill Christians anymore. I just want to make every single person a Christian now that I can. I'm zealous to go make as many people. So his personality didn't change. And so we see here, even as far as his zealousness for God in Acts 7, at the very end of 7 and the beginning of 8, whenever they're stoning Stephen, when it mentions him as Saul, it says that Saul's there um, holding their garments and they're throwing his feet at Saul's Uh, Throwing their garments at Saul's feet. He's kind of the the coat holder while they all go kill Stephen. This Christian that they need to stomp out and get rid of. Because he believes that his version of following God is right. And it says in Acts 1. And Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. And so he's saying when it comes to being zealous. I'm very zealous. I persecuted the church. And then he goes one more. This This one might be a little more than we can handle. Look what he says. As to righteousness, as to right standing with God, he says, under the law, I was blameless. Now, we think about that for a second. We're like, okay, wait a second. Um, (laughs) What world does he live in? If he lived in my brain, he would realize I'm pretty sinful. I don't know how he can actually say he's blameless. Because it seems like that's a lot of laws. I mean, there's like 600 and he's keeping them all. And what Paul is saying is as far as law-keeping goes, as far as following 600 laws, I am so disciplined that I was blameless. So the best way for us to think about this is he was legalistically righteous. He kept all of the laws blamelessly. Now, what we know is that means jack squat in coming to Christ. Because what God's saying is, God's not saying, oh, that you would just keep all my rules, that you would just love rules and you would be the rule follower. I just love it that you're such a good rule follower. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want your heart. I want that whenever I have captured your heart, that you'll just because of out of deep love for me, you'll follow good ethics and morals, but I want it to be because you're deeply in love with me. And the Pharisees didn't have that. They just said, we are the best rule keepers. We follow rules like no one's business. And Paul's saying, when it comes to that big list, I was legalistically righteous. I did all of them. And so now he's kind of amassed his list here and all of them and saying, if there's anybody that can glory in the flesh, (laughs) those Judaizers, those dogs have nothing. Look at what I've done. And this is where I'm talking. This is where it gets awesome. Oh, this is where it gets. This is where we're going to start making some really headway into the gospel. And I, I, I love the gospel. I pray that Christ gives me deeper in, um, affections and love and understanding of the gospel. But I love it very much. And Paul's going to start unpacking for us this good news. Christians, don't ever get tired of hearing the gospel. You need to hear the gospel every single day, every single week. You need to be reminded that your right standing with God is not based on your performance, but based on Christ's performance, what Christ has done, not on what you do. And so he's going to say that for us here. He's going to lay out for us the gospel. This is where it gets absolutely beautiful. Look at verse 7. But... I have amassed my credits. I think that these credits have given me a right standing with God. This is what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted, now that I'm a believer, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he's looking at his accounting ledger and he's saying, you've got don't glory in the flesh and glory in the flesh. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch it here. And I'm going to put this over there, glorying in the flesh, thinking that those things are great. That's actually counting as loss now. And so I'm switching it for me. What counts as a debit for me, what counts as nothing, what counts as verse seven says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. All the things that I thought were pleasing to God, I actually don't just say, well, they're kind of in the wind. He actually says, I'm going to literally count them as a loss. They mean nothing. And he's going to get even more vehement with us. So let's look at this for a second. And then we're going to, we're going to do some more counting work in just a minute. But I want, I want to show you the amazingness of him saying, let's count it as a loss against after he came to know Christ, what happens to him. Now, before Christ, he did these things. I mean, 
anybody that does these things and everybody respects that, they think, I'm pretty important. Look at me. Look what I've done. Everybody, look at what I've done. Y'all should, y'all should think I'm pretty great. So you have all that before Christ. And then when he comes to know Christ, there's some amazing things that happen after. They're nothing. They, they look nothing like this. Let's look at this. In verse 8, this is what it says. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, look at this phrase right here. I have suffered the loss of all things. D.A. Carson, picking up on that verse, says this. He says, and lose them he did. Talking about that we have, as, as Christ followers, suffered the loss of all things. Specifically in Paul, he says, and lose all things he did. He was written off by his former friends. He had friends that, that tried to adhere to this list as well. And D.A. Carson says he was written off by those former friends and intellectual peers. He lost the security of a home. He lost, now he is a constant traveler with no fixed abode or no house. The kinds of sufferings that he now will have um, are picked up for us in 2 Corinthians. So let me read what happened to Paul. Um, From going from this to now that he's in Christ, this is his life now. It says this in 2 Corinthians 11. This is a a list of now what's happening to him. Instead of those amazing things that everybody thinks, oh, you're so great, Paul. This is his life. He has had now far greater labors. He has even had far more imprisonments. He has had countless beatings. Now that he's in Christ, those things are gone. And this is the life he gets. Labors, beatings, imprisonment. And then it says... um, Near death sometimes. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. What this means is 40 was kind of such a perfect number. They literally believed that if we beat you or whip you 40 times, that will put that will bring you to death. 40 is the perfect number. If I whip you 40 times, you will die. So what I want to do is bring you to the point of death. So I'm going to whip you one less of 40. And that's why he says five times I received the 40 lashes less one. Because the people that were beating him literally thought they had beat him to the point of death. And then just left him there. He said that happened five times to him. Keep on going. He says um, three times I was beaten with rods. Just massive sticks. Once he was stoned. The same thing that happened to Stephen. People stoned him. He didn't die. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger at the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And that's just the physical things that have happened to me. On top of all the physical things, there's even the mental game that I have of being this church planner where he says, every time I go to a city and people come to know Christ, I want them to grow in their walk. And I know I got to go to the next city and I want that church to endure. And he says in 28, and apart from all those things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches that the believers in Christ would stay strong. This is the list he gets now that he's in Christ. This was the list before. And that's the list he gets now. And he still says, I count that as loss. That's pretty amazing. Not only that, this is where it gets really good. Now, let me just, let me take us one step back. Because that's the first century Paul. And that's religious, religiosity and we have our own list of things that we do that we think God makes us is happy with this. Like we don't go to rated R movies and we don't ever drink alcohol. And we only read from the KJV because it's 1611 and, you know, whatever. We have our list that we honestly think because I do these things, I now am more loved by God. I have more of a right standing with God. I am now considered more righteous because I do these things with God. We have our list. We, we really do. But let me just take one step back and just kind of say, let's pull us back to 21st century and ask a question. Because that was the other side of Paul when he came to know Christ. That was what happened to him. Just a terrible life. Looking from the outside in. He would not say that. I wonder if being a Christian, if it weren't so easy in the South, and it's very easy to be a believer, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. 
If it weren't so easy in the South, and it really meant for us, as he says here, suffering the loss of all things, would we be so fickle as to walk away? Or would we, like Paul, say, yes, I want that? Or would we say, it's just too dangerous? It's just too difficult. I'm too fickle. I'm going to walk away. Would we say, no way I'm going to suffer the loss of all things. That's just too much to ask. I wonder. Because it's pretty simple and easy to be a Christian here in America in the 21st century. Now, here's why I think that question is important to ask. Not to make you feel guilty about living in South Carolina. But I think that as we're going to look at the rest of these verses... It's going to give us a better understanding about what Paul means when he says right here in the middle of verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of right here. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we use that phrase, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the way we answer that question, I just asked sheds light onto how we think about the phrase of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we are fickle at heart and things get tough, when we hear knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, it'll probably just sound really churchy to us. It'll probably just sound really simplistic to us. And sure that we want to do that because, you know, hell's hot and I don't want to go there. And most of my friends are Christians. And so it seems like a pretty neat thing to have some friends and, you know, stay away from those those bad things. And so, yeah. Um, It's a churchy answer that I get to know Christ Jesus, but really I'm fine with that. Or is it that if we can kind of throw away the churchiness of it and think about. Would I be so fickle if I can really say I would suffer all things. um, Whenever we say knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the churchiness of that phrase goes away and then it just becomes extremely precious. To say knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is absolutely worth it. And I am willing to suffer all things just like Paul did. No matter what city I live in, no matter what time frame I live in, no matter where I live in this world, I I don't want to be fickle. I want to follow him that way. I think the way we answer that question helps us. And so Paul, as he's looking at this, he's literally going to look at those categories and say, glorying in the flesh and don't glory in the flesh. Those are not the categories I want to use anymore. I've put these things on as things I should count as loss. But instead, I want to use a different category. Look what he says here in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The preciousness of that statement we just talked about. And he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So now he says, glory in the flesh, no longer a good category. Instead, I want to call them rubbish. I want to call them skubala. I want to call it, that's the Greek word, dung, garbage. So what Paul is doing is he says, I count them as rubbish. The word skubala, this is the strongest word that Paul can write in the word Greek. Um, and it not be a, an inflammatory cuss word, but it still means dung. And it's stronger than our word dung. So whatever that means in English. And so he says, all the things that I thought would be precious before God, this, this list, I'm going to put them over it now. And I'm going to say that those things are literally rubbish, dung, trash, garbage, scubala. And he's saying that you can't now as a believer say, well, I still want to hold on to those things. And I want to hold on to Christ. Look what it says right here. And he says, I have count at the very end of verse eight. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Notice this in order that I may gain Christ. Therefore, I have to take those things that I thought. And for us, it's, you know, not watching rated R movies and whatever. We have to say those things I literally have to count as loss in order to know Christ Jesus, my Lord, in order that I may gain Christ. You can't say I want both of them. It's. Those things that I thought gave me a right standing are now dung for the ash heap. And now all I want is Christ. Think of it this way. We, we don't get garbage collection at our house. I, I just throw it in the back of my truck. And then, I don't know, every few days I um, take it off to the dump. So um, think of it this way. Today, 
as I take garbage out when I get home and throw it in the back of my truck and I go back into my house to watch the Panthers lose again, I don't think to myself, oh man, you know what? I miss my trash. I want to go out there and just roll around in my truck bed with my trash and hold it all over me and just rub my trash all over. No one thinks, oh, I wish I had my trash. Oh, I just love my garbage. Can I have my dung back? No one says that. And this is what Paul's saying. If you're going to say, I'm still going to hold on to things that I think give me right standing with God. All we're doing is saying, oh, I just want trash. I want garbage. But indeed, he says, I count all those things as loss. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Anything that comes into competition or battle with the right standing with Jesus, we must count as loss. We put it as rubbish. And then we say, because now it is righteousness. And the only thing that for us is righteousness, the only thing when we throw all those things away, the only thing that now is righteous, the only thing that now is good for us, the only thing that drives us daily to go out and live this Christian life is what he says right there in verse 8. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it. That's all I have. That's all I want. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he's going to talk about what knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, means. Right here in verse 9. After he says, I I counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him. And be found in him. not Not having a righteousness of my own. That word righteousness in the Greek is the same word as justification. If you've been around that seminary word, justification is the God's declaration over you. That you are now counted righteous in Christ. That's the moment we put faith in Christ is the moment that we now have a perfect right standing with God. Romans 8, 1, there's no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is now true of you. And you are in Christ. Now, after you're in Christ, of course, you can please or displease God with the things that you do. But we're talking about this justification. This is what he says in verse 9. And being found in him, not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's a little, just shortly, very fast, three things that he says about this righteousness. One, in verse nine, it's from God. The righteousness that you have is from God. It is not self-manufactured. If it was, it's dung. The righteousness comes from God. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is the only good thing. The next thing is that it's ascertained, it's dependent upon faith. You are now a child of God. You are receiving righteousness because you have put faith in Christ Jesus. So it's dependent upon faith. But we know Ephesians 2.8, Philippians 1.29, the faith that it's dependent upon is actually a gift from God. So not only is the righteousness a gift from God, the faith that you put in God in order to receive the righteousness is also a gift from God. He gives you the faith in order that you may be righteous so that you can't boast and he gets all the glory. He has to get all the glory or else he's not God. Lastly, this um, righteousness is set against law keeping. You can see that in verse nine. Law keeping does not get you righteousness. Knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, and pursuing him as treasure. That is what our righteousness is based on. So, as we're looking at this text, and Paul's finishing here for us, um, Philippians 3, 1 through 9. He's finishing for us these kind of four examples that we should emulate. Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Paul, but really Jesus, because he says everything that I had is dung. So really, it's all based on Jesus. And so he's bookending it both with the foundation and the the cornerstone and capstone and all of it with Christ. And he's holding out those two as just people. We look at at our physical eyes, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We just look at them with our physical eyes, but spiritual eyes are still focused on Christ. He's saying the religious people, the dogs, the Judaizers, they love to boast. Oh, they love to boast about what they do. They love to boast about their wealth or their societal status or their education or their politics. They follow the right politician. They have, the, they have business success. They, they're in the right denomination. They um, are part of the right religious group. They're, 
read the right version of the Bible, whatever. They, they love to boast about those particular things. And generally, if you're outside of that religious group, then you generally feel like you're inferior to them. Well, they must have it all together. They're the, you know, they're the Pharisaicals, Pharisees of the 21st century. Um, but what Paul is saying, the religious like to boast. They love to boast. But since we're looking at these examples, the people that you should actually Follow after as they follow Christ. The people that you should emulate, emulate, the people that you should imitate, are not the religious that like to boast. Instead, those who boast only in the cross of Christ are the ones that you should imitate. Let me read Galatians 6.14. We, we're referencing Galatians. He finishes the book of Galatians with this in 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If I'm going to boast about anything, the only thing I'm going to boast about is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's nothing else. And so he's saying, when you imitate people, whenever you're going to follow people, don't follow the outside religious. Instead, look at those whose constant confidence is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at those who boast in Christ Jesus. Look at those who delight in Christ Jesus. Whenever you do Jesus is the center of their worship. Jesus is the center of their affections. Jesus is the center of their gratitude. Jesus is the center of their love that they give to people. Jesus is the center of the hope that they have, not just in this life, but in the next. Those are the people that you want to emulate. Those are the people that you should imitate. Follow those who only boast in the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. That Christ has come and given his life for us on the cross. And the only boast we have is the righteousness that's given to us because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we go into a time of response here um, after the baptism, this is what I want you to think about. Um, after the baptism's over, we're going to worship. And perhaps as you hear a story of a testimony of someone who has come to Christ and has put their hope in Christ. Maybe the rest of the day or even later on today, you'll just do a little self-reflection and say, or maybe a lot. Are there any pieces of my life? Are there any vestiges in my heart where I am trying to have a right standing with God based on my performance rather than based on Christ's work on the cross? Am I in my heart kind of boasting about um, the things that I've done, or am I only boasting in the cross of Christ? I'm going to pray, and then we'll see a testimony of Allison and how she came to know Christ. And then we'll baptize her. And then after that, we will worship like we're going to worship in heaven. It's going to be awesome. I want you to shoot for that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time where we can look at your word and just be amazed again at your gospel. Be amazed again that you have declared us righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross. Forgive us, Lord, of the places where we are Judaizers, where we are Pharisaical, where we are the dogs that think because of the things we're doing, we have right standing. Take away those things in our heart, Lord, and help us focus on Christ alone. Boast only in Christ alone and what he's done on the cross. I pray for my friends here, Lord. My own heart and my friends here. Those that are believers, that they would lean deeper into Christ and what he's done. That they would preach the gospel to themselves daily and only hope in what he's done. And for those, God, that don't know Jesus, I pray that you would regenerate their hearts this morning. That they would see and understand the preciousness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and become a believer in Jesus today and be saved. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.